The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It was a true revelation, and I, I think it defined the next decade of my life, my reaction to those stories and my sense that I think I know what I want to do and how I want to do it, because Carver was kind of showing me the way. That's novelist Tom Parada, author of Election and Little Children and so many other great works of fiction, talking about the moment he discovered Raymond Carver's first collection of short stories, Will You Please Be Quiet, Please. He's here today to talk about his background in blue-collar New Jersey, the culture shock of attending Yale, and the impact that Carver had on him as he set forth on his own path to writing fiction. Tom Parada and Raymond Carver, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, the host, the host with the most, the most. That is literally... Just there for the rhyme. I don't have any, I don't have the most of anything, do I? The most angst, maybe? The most losses? The, the most defeats in life? Ah, oh, well. Another one of those days. The most wayward introductions. There we go. Award me the crown. Tom Parada is here today, and I can't wait. He's a great American writer. The Steinbeck of suburbia, they call him. Also... America's Chekhov, and the master of suburban noir. He's a graceful, intelligent, gritty, and very funny writer. You should all check out his books. And as it turns out, he's an advocate of another American Chekhov. We've had a bunch of American Chekhovs, haven't we? That phrase gets used quite a bit. Who's the Russian Chekhov? (laughs) That's a trick question. That's the kind of question my dad would ask my mom. If they talked about literature, which they don't ever. But once my mom, this was, this, I'll tell you the story. This was years ago, and turkey bacon was a new thing. A health fad. Turkey bacon, good for the heart. So my mom cooked some up, and my father is the fussiest eater ever. Sometime I'll tell you about that. He's a very picky eater, fanatically picky eater. So my mom made some turkey bacon, and he tried it, he tolerated it, and she said, oh, how interesting, turkey bacon. I wonder if there are any other healthy bacons we haven't heard about. And my father said, pork bacon? And she said, oh, yeah, pork bacon. I bet that's good, too. So she goes into the grocery store, goes to the butcher counter, finds the butcher, And she says, excuse me, I have a question. I see you have a couple of packs of turkey bacon down here, and of course, you have a lot of bacon bacon. But I was wondering, do you carry any pork bacon? And the butcher just waved his arm at the entire counter and said, Lady... And so she comes out of the store, she tells us all about it in the car, and I'm about 10 years old, and I'm in the back seat smacking my forehead. 
And my dad does not break his stony-faced nod. He's Buster Keaton listening to her explain what just happened. How she asked for pork bacon after saying, I see all the bacon bacon. Where's the pork bacon? Do you carry that? Do they make that? (laughs) And he just listens to it all and nods. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. And that's how they are, those two. He gets his silent pleasure, and she goes on her eager and earnest way. God love them both. Okay, a few emails today. We have some good ones. And then the great Tom Parada. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The boss. You'll see why that is so relevant for our guest today, although I probably should have picked something from one of Bruce's earlier albums. But when the song is this good, who cares? Okay, here's our first email from Pakistan. Subject, some comments on Beckett. I am Muzaffar from Sindh, Pakistan. My interest in literature is because I have done my BS in English literature. I just wanted to tell you that you do this very well especially the way you illustrate things and the way that you're laughing sounds nice. The last episode I listened to was your discussion on Beckett, which was informative, and now I take time from my schedule of studying to listen to you daily. Thank you very much. Glad to have you on board. It's a nice email from Pakistan. Boy, love getting around the world with this thing. Okay, here's one from Matthew. Subject, history of literature. Hey, Jack. Matthew here, writing from Dallas, TX. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you for doing what you do. The history of literature has filled a bit of a void in my life. I've been out of college for a year now, and though I didn't study literature at school, I was a film major, reading is immensely important to me. Most of my friends from college are film guys and girls who don't read at all, though they all want to be screenwriters. Doesn't make sense not to be reading. So... (laughs) A little irritation shining through and... Matthew's parenthetical there. Okay, so I, I don't really have anyone to share this passion with. 
My friends are getting sick of me sending them books for their birthdays. I've sent Slaughterhouse-Five, The Bell Jar, Hemingway's Collected Short Stories, and Wind-Up Bird Chronicle out as birthday presents, figuring all four of these would be pretty good introductions to literature. We're all in our early 20s, but they all went unread. So I'm mostly left feeling frustrated and a bit lonely, like I'm the weird one for enjoying books. Then I found your podcast. It's been... (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Matthew. If you think that if you were worried that you were the weird one and then you felt better because you found this podcast, I'm sorry. You're you're among weird ones. How about that? You found you found your home. Okay. Then I found your podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful listening to these episodes. I've found in them the conversations that I don't get to have with my own stubbornly non-reading friends. I listen to at least one episode every day. The literary battle episodes that you've been doing with Mike lately have been especially fun, and the Faulkner and Baldwin episodes were powerful, moving listens. You and Mike have also introduced me to lots of books I otherwise may have never found, like Javier Marias's A Heart So White and John Kennedy Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces. I loved both of those. I even read Don Quixote, just because Mike said I shouldn't. Tell him it gets a lot better in part two. I think it's worth another try. Actually, we have some news on that front. Maybe I'll wait for Mike to come back to break the news. Okay, back to the email. Anyway, I just wanted to say thanks. I know we haven't met, but I feel like I found a great friend and a kindred spirit in you. Listening to your podcast really brightens my days and has been helping me get through these troubled times. Your fellow reader, Matthew. P.S. Is Mike ever going to finish his series on David Foster Wallace? In part two, he said there would be a third part entirely dedicated to Infinite Jest. Infinite Jest is a favorite of mine, and I'd love to hear Mike's thoughts on it. Also, maybe do an episode on Cormac McCarthy sometime. Just throwing that out there. Oh, Matthew. I know what that's like. Your friends don't want those books and make you feel like the weird one. Well, maybe you should give them to others or give them... No, give them... Give those books to them anyway. You never know. And eventually, you'll find your group. And in the meantime, you have us here at the History of Literature. Mike is planning to do some more David Foster Wallace, I'm pretty sure. As you know, that's one I have to outsource to Mike. I can't I can't face it myself when I'm not pestering him to join me for other topics. I'm sure he's working on the DFW. He is a busy man. Okay, one more. Subject, 100 Days of Solitude in Brazil. Hmm. We're getting such good emails from Brazil. Here we go. With the risk of being one Brazilian too many... I decided to write this email because your voice has become the human voice I've been hearing the most in the last couple months. I'm currently in quarantine by myself. Things in Brazil are so bad, with our fascist president urging people to ignore the risks and go on with their lives, that today I completed 100 days without seeing another human being live. I have my food delivered to my door, exercise in my living room, the same place where I work. All of this is done while I go over the previous episodes, sometimes four a day. Thus, you have become somehow my closest quarantine friend. Human friend, I must say, in order not to hurt the feelings of of my cats. (laughs) It's very considerate. More than a friend, in a weird way, you have also become an advisor. You see, I made the decision of leaving my homeland. I'm 37 now and decided I don't want to grow old in this country. 
We are a beautiful nation and have contributed to the world in so many beautiful ways, but I don't see the fascist shadow that covered us going away soon. It's a weird sensation, the one of feeling like you don't belong to your own homeland, and I know now I'm doomed to feel like this for the rest of my life. Since literature has taught us, you can never really belong to a foreign country. Yet, I've decided to go, and all the podcasts have proven to be great travel guides, as books go deep into the soul of the writers and the places they write about. Sometimes I can transport myself to the places you talk about and get the feeling of whether it would be a good home. I've yet to make my final decision, but as I pack my books, your voice and the stories you tell seem to guide me to the right decision. I hope I'll be, I'll be soon taking you along for my new adventure and also have you around as I settle in my new home, unpack my stuff, and start a new life. Thank you so much for your work and kindness. Gustavo P.S. Of the beautiful things Brazil has given the world, one of the most precious is the black writer Machado de Assis. I personally see a great resemblance between his work and Dostoevsky's, and dare I say, superior to Borges. I've heard there's a new translation of posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas, or Epitaph of a Small Winner, as it is sometimes translated. That is great. A show about him would be great. Wow. 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 Gustavo. What a life-changing moment for you, Gustavo. And I'm... I don't know what to say. Reminds me of a very early listener who told me she was loading up her phone with episodes for her trip to Mongolia. Do you remember that one? Long-time listeners will. She was going to be way off the grid for months, I don't know, riding wild horses or something, sleeping in tents on the Mongolian plains, roaming through the world, a true vagabond as I was once upon a time during my trip to Tibet and Nepal and India and China and all the rest. I didn't have a podcast to listen to. And you know what? You might be thinking, well, all these people want to have your voice in their head. And you had that, Jack Wilson. You had that voice whenever you wanted. You didn't need to download anything. You didn't need Wi-Fi. You didn't need headphones. You had access to a good hour with Jack whenever you wanted. Well, it has not been such a good company for me, people. The voice kind of drives me crazy. Frankly, I've accepted it. When it spins out of control, I live with it, but it makes me lonely. It's kind of a disaster here in the Jack Wilson brain. I guess I put up a good front. The exterior is a decent-looking house, and inside it's a total disaster. You walk through the front door and fall straight into the abyss. But good luck to you, Gustavo. I'm honored to hear that the podcast has resonated with you, and I wish you luck with the next step in your journey. Keep us posted. Here's the thing. Three Brazilian friends have written me recently, and all three have recommended Machado de Assis. Three for three. So I have acquired the book, which is excellent so far. I'm not finished with it yet. It's reminiscent of a Tristram Shandy, maybe an Italo Zvevo, but it's also unique. And guess what? I'm going to try to include Brazilian friend on the show. That's right. We will see how that goes. It's in the works. I'm a little nervous about it. (laughs) She started this whole thing. You remember these Brazilians. They are kind of amazing super listeners. And now Gustavo joins the merry trio. 
Maybe I need to go to Brazil. What do you think? There we go. A little Brazilian music. I'm such a fan. Maybe when all the pandemic is over and we're back to normal, I might have to take a trip to Brazil. There are good readers down there. In the meantime, I'll just do my journey via Machado de Assis. Kind of like... There we go. Kind of like how we can travel to New Jersey through the music of Bruce Springsteen or indeed through the sensibility of our next guest, the New Jersey-born Tom Parada. New Jersey, by the way, by way of Yale, which we'll talk about. That's the kind of culture shock I know all too well. It resonated with me, these stories that Tom has for us. Let's take one more quick break and come back with Tom Parada and Raymond Carver. Hey, joining me now is the novelist and screenwriter Tom Parada, author of nine works of fiction, including the novels Mrs. Fletcher, The Leftovers, and The Abstinence Teacher. He is perhaps best known for two works that became highly successful and critically acclaimed movies, Election of 1998 and Little Children of 2004, for which Mr. Parada received an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay. He's here today to talk about Raymond Carver. Tom Parada, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So I read that you started your reading with O. Henry, J.R.R. Tolkien, and John Irving. What kind of childhood were you having? So, you know, this and this this will relate to Carver. You know, I grew up in a working class town. Uh, my parents didn't go to college. The people I knew who read were were my English teachers. Mm. You know, there weren't a lot of books around in my house or in the house of most of my friends. You know, so books were in libraries. And, and, uh, you know, so O. Henry was probably, well, certainly was assigned to us and was in anthologies. Mm. Tolkien, I actually found in a rack at the drugstore mm. and so in a trade paperback edition of, of The Hobbit. Yeah. And something about it called out to me. And I, I re- really thought that I had discovered it. You know, I just, I didn't understand right. that by the time <laughs> a book appears in the rack of the drugstore, you know, many other people have discovered it. No one mentioned it to me. Of course, then I realized that, um, you know, some Led Zeppelin songs were referring to it and that yeah. it had a kind of cultural currency uh, once I started talking about it. Uh, but but books would, would come to me in very odd ways. Like I happened to have a one good friend whose sister was in college and when I was in high school, she had given him a Flannery O'Connor story collection. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, that was an unusual book to, to come across. And, and so it wasn't like I was deprived of literature. It was just things were coming to me in um, somewhat random ways. But when, once my high school English teachers knew that I was hungry for books, um, they started to, um, you know, hand things to me. Right. And w- what do you think gave you that hunger for books? Were you just a, a curious child or bookish or withdrawn or what was, what about books was appealing to you? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I was not um, 
withdrawn or, or bookworm. I was a little jock. I was, mm. I really wanted to play football and, and, um, I was, you know, maybe a little bit of a, a you know, uh, I don't want to call myself a jerk, but I, you know, I was, I would, I got into fights and, and I was very interested in coming across as uh, what was traditionally considered, you know, masculine and, and tough in that world. Yeah. But I also happened to be a very good student and, and really loved to read and was very emotionally affected by music. So, you know, I think uh, I, I had a hard time sort of integrating these um, mm. parts of, of, you know, what seemed to be parts of, of my, my personality. And um, my brother was a, a great athlete. He's also a, a real reader. He's a year older than me. And at a certain point, I realized I couldn't compete with him in that way. And I sort of veered off into this more bohemian and artistic path, you know, mm. that involved learning to play the guitar and, and starting to take books seriously and, and volunteering for the high school literary magazine, which was uh, called Pariah. I'm always happy to <laughs> announce <laughs> that was, that was very much our self-identification. Yeah. Wearing you know? it as a badge of honor. Yeah. <laughs> so, and this, I don't think we've mentioned this was in New Jersey and you were, your parents were Italian immigrants and we're talking about the sixties and seventies now, right? Yeah. So, so my grandparents were the immigrants. My, my parents were born here, but both of them spoke. Uh, you know, my father grew up until, you know, for a few years speaking Italian. My mother was actually Albanian, um, and, and that was the language that she spoke uh, first. Mm -hmm. and is but, this... Yeah, this is, so this is working class New Jersey near, yeah. like, the vicinity of Newark Airport and the Union County. Right. So that was going to be my question. It's not... It's a kind of a suburban life, but it's not exactly the Steven Spielberg of E.T. kind of suburbs. It's a little more working class than that, I guess, right? Yeah. So Garwood, the town I grew up in, was our, our town seal. The motto was uh, industrial center of Union County. And we had like uh, there was a plastics company. There was uh, mm. a a perforating company. There was a, a freeze drying company so that they would freeze dry food. And depending upon what food they were freeze drying, you know, the town could smell suddenly like blueberries or, or chicken or, you know, there was also a, an organ company that had been there years before. Anyway, it, the, the train tracks went right through and there were all these factories that have since been knocked down and, and turned into strip malls. But, but basically I didn't, the kids I grew up with, their parents for the most part had not gone to college. Mm. And they didn't travel into the city to work, even though now the town is full of uh, people who who commute into the city and property values have gone up. But at that time, it was really like a place where factory workers and mechanics and, and cops um, and secretaries is a blue collar town. Right. And and I should say, you know, because it's so um, so much you know, in, in the moment right now, it was an all white town and mm. it was a town where, where black people were not allowed to look at houses, you know, and, and that was so defining of mm. my life. And, and I see now on Facebook, a lot of people I grew up with talk about that world like it was, you know, Mayberry. They use it all the time. That was like Mayberry. And, the, and there's very little sense that, um, you know, that there, there's this shameful truth kind of hanging over it. I, I do think now that it, it's, just such a central fact of, of my childhood that we lived so close to New York, so close to Newark, so close to Elizabeth, and, and had no black neighbors. Uh, apart from that realization, 
are you nostalgic for it? Would you have been nostalgic for it? Or did you do you look back at it as being uh, not all it's cracked up to be, even apart from the racial issues? Um, that's a really complicated question for me. Um, and, and it will relate to, you know, Carver and I think why I found him mm-hmm. so appealing. Um, I think we all, well, I mean, if you had a good parents and a close family, which I think I did, you know, there, there's some sense of, of nostalgia for, yeah, sure. for childhood, but I also had this feeling of wanting to, to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I also had this feeling, and this is very seventies kind of feeling. And I think it's only gotten more pronounced in American culture since then that, you know, we were being lied to mm. about, you know, and that, that visions of stories that we told to ourselves were fake stories in the same way that I think when my, you know, former classmates on Facebook talk about this kind of, you know, utopian Mayberry that we grew up in. I'm like, there were kids dying of drug overdoses. There were, you know, people whose parents were alcoholics. There were, uh, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of, uh, you know, bullying, homophobia, you know, just whatever, whatever you can think about. It's, It's like it all got edited out. And so I was, to some degree, I was nostalgic, and to some other degree, I was interested in telling the truth because I didn't necessarily think anyone else would do it. Yeah. So we are leading right We're on the doorstep of Carver here. I want to ask you questions about that. But first, I want to ask you about Bruce Springsteen, because I think actually you and I have a very similar background. I grew up in rural Wisconsin, surrounded by farms and factories, and it was a small town where nobody went to college or hardly anyone did. And and I went through a lot of these things more in the 70s and 80s. And for me, Bruce Springsteen, I didn't really know who he was until, you know, the Born in the USA years. And then it, it really, he really resonated with me because of the stories of, uh, you know, at the We Are the World uh, <laughs> when they were singing for We Are the World, everyone showed up in limos and he showed up driving a pickup truck. And it just, you know, there was a lot for me to find uh, comfort in or to, you know, he was kind of my guy for a while. And I'm wondering if for you, by that point, he was maybe hard to share with the rest of the world. If it was like in the 70s, you would have been uh, listening to Bruce Springsteen. And was he kind of a, was he speaking for you at that time? So I, I can still remember being maybe 13 or 14, and, and uh, I was at the Little League where we hung out all the time. And, you know, so it'd be like these teenagers looking for trouble, hanging out on a playground next to the Little League baseball field. And some uh, stoner high school kids saying to me, there's this guy, Bruce Springsteen, you got to listen listen to him. And, and I remember hearing those early albums, you know, like, Greetings from Asbury Park, which is still my favorite, actually. Um, And I think what happened was there there was that that feeling of like getting a little alienated from him in college. And this is where we're getting into Carver now, because I Mm -hmm. happen to go from this, you know, small working class town to Yale Mm, and and had this like intense culture shock and this sense of being sort of in exile or uprooted in some way. And I remember being very annoyed by the idea that a rich private school kid, say, you know, in my dorm, could listen to Bruce Springsteen and claim him Mm. just as well as I could. It didn't seem right, you know. I think in in my book, Joe College, which is like an autobiographical novel about Yale, there's some 
the narrator, you know, mutters something about, uh, I wish I could remember the exact line, but it was like these people who would be the bosses of the people the boss was singing about. Mm, right. And that's been a really interesting, I think, part of Springsteen fandom, you know, is just seeing, you know, how conservative many of his fans are and how utterly um, oblivious they are or, or just impervious they are to his political messages. Right. And I read a quote by you. I'm going to read part of it here. It was from a newspaper article from 2009. And you said, I like to write simply and clearly. I never wanted to write for the guys I met in college. I wanted to write for the guys I grew up with who weren't literary sophisticates. I have an allergy to fancy writing. I can't imagine why anyone would want to read a thousand pages of David Foster Wallace. The only message he would, <laughs> <laughs> the only message he would be conveying to someone like my dad was that he wasn't smart enough to understand a single word he was saying. So it seems like I don't know if you want to comment on that, or and then maybe we should just start talking about Carver because that yeah, seems well, to be the sweet spot here. <laughs> that is the sweet spot, and and I feel bad that I I put it in in those in those terms, and they seem like the kind of terms that were me wishing for something to be true um mm. because i don't think i ended up writing for the guys i grew up with mm. um so a handful of them maybe but um you know the literary audience in america is the literary audience in america and it turns out to be primarily a college educated mm -hmm. audience you know i didn't end up succeeding if that was my goal i don't think i ended up succeeding I but don't... it was definitely Oh, go on. I was just going to say, I, I don't know if the guys that I went to high school with would read a work of fiction of any kind. Yeah, no, I know. And that, that I think, is, is the flaw in my, <laughs> in my aesthetic system. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I think I was younger, too, and I, and I think I was very, very hopeful that I could combine the two worlds, mm. you know, of yeah. Yale and, and Garwood. Now, at this point in my life, I don't know that I did. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, Yale changed me in some way. I, I you know, I re literally went there saying, I'm not going to let this place change me. I'm going to be exactly the person I was. I'll just have this really good education. Right. Um, but class doesn't work like that in this country. Yeah. And I was, I was changed, but it took me a long time to admit that. And in that period when I was fighting against this sense that I was, you know, less connected to where I grew up and, and maybe a little distance from, you know, a lot of people that I loved, I was trying to figure out how to be the writer I wanted to be. Yeah. And I would read, you know, I, I went through a period, as you mentioned, of like Tolkien. John Irving was hugely important to me. Yeah. Um, and, but when I got to college, I was going through this sort of Garcia Marquez and Kafka, a mm -hmm. lot of European and Latin American literature, uh, you know, a Russian period. But I was just, you know, about to kind of start writing seriously on my own. And I was kind of torn in a bunch of different directions. And I read, I read Carver. And the reason I read him was that Gordon Lish was actually teaching at Yale. I didn't take his class, but I was aware of it. Mm -hmm. And he was teaching a, a, a workshop, a fiction writing workshop, and the only assigned text was, will you please be quiet, please? Mm. And I had never heard of Raymond Carver, and I just couldn't understand how this would be that uh, in a writing <laughs> workshop at Yale, the only assigned text would be this collection of stories that I had never heard of. Yeah. And, and it just, and it had such a weird title, and it kind of stuck in my head. But I think I didn't, it was a couple of years before I picked the book up, and I want to say that it was right before I graduated. I opened it up and I found the story fat 
mm. which is set in a diner yep. and narrated by a waitress. It was a, just a true shock to me, just the voice, the simpli- you know, apparent simplicity of the story, and then this, this, there was an edge of surrealism to it mm-hmm. and a kind of mystery to it. And it had everything that, that I think Carver just was able to give me a way forward and just to say, like, you can write simply, you can write about working class people, but you can be literary, you can be mysterious, yeah, right. your work can feel like a dream. It was a true revelation, and I, I think it defined the next decade of my life, my reaction to those stories and my sense that I think I know what I want to do and how I want to do it, because Carver was kind of showing me the way. That you could have artistry, but not pretension. It's a blue collar style. It's a it's not a pretentious vocabulary or anything, and and it's not even very showy. But there's real artistry there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so different if you think of what what a writer like Roth is doing. You know, Roth's intelligence mm. is you know emanating from every sense. And I you know I love Roth now. I mean, I, I just think he's a you know remarkable American writer. But you know his intelligence is is permeating the style and then his characters are all big talkers and very often quite erudite and colorful. Um, Whereas Carver was writing about people who often were were inexpressive and didn't have really a sophisticated access to their inner life or a sophisticated sense of their own identity Mm. even. And yet somehow he could write in sometimes in their voices and sometimes just, you know, in, in a kind of third person I, again, yeah, write, write stories that were as good as anything, you know, John Cheever had written as good as anything, Flannery O'Connor had written, you know, I, I just, uh, it was, a, I think, for me, a kind of synthesis of literary sophistication and working class life that really hit me like a, a bolt of lightning. Yeah. I had a professor once, and I had this professor for a couple of different courses, and he was himself kind of a, a friend of Saul Bellows and this sort of erudite uh, novelist. And and he, we in one class, we would read Proust and Rilke and Kafka and, and all of these uh, Europeans. And then in the other class, we would just read stories and narrative, and, and he had a Raymond Carver story on the syllabus. And I remember him saying, you read this and you think a truck driver could have written it. It's so unassuming that that it sneaks in and then uh but it it conveys these emotions and it conveys this humor and sorrow and the the earnest and the the earnestness and the self-defeat of Carver's world it's just remarkable how he does it it's kind of a magic trick yeah it really is and and you know one one thing i'll say reading a book that changed your life um and this is it's almost it's it's probably it's over 25 years since I first encountered this book and and you know I know so much more about Carver now and I can look at something like Will You Please Be Quiet Please as a, a a work of autobiography I know that Carver wrote these stories when he was an alcoholic I mean you know mm. when he was still drinking um, when his first marriage was falling apart uh, you know that there were bankruptcies um, you know that 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 a lot of this now feels like an autobiographical rendering of what was a really desperate existence but i didn't i didn't um know that at the time that i came across this and and uh so that that's you know but the oh the other thing i was going to say is you know so he was also someone who went from a kind of 
somewhat bleak. My, my childhood wasn't bleak, but I think Carver's mm. was, was much, much bleaker in that sense. But, you know, what's interesting in, in a lot of these stories is the way that um, every now and then there are these jarring references to literature. There's a, a vacuum cleaner salesman yeah. who uh, quotes Rilke, <laughs> you know, and, and there's right. another story about a, a guy who's reading Rilke to his wife. There's a, a, a kind of an intense story about a guy who goes to work in a mill and his foreman dies of a heart attack and he comes home to his wife and there's a copy of best love poems of the American people mm. and he picks it up and tries to read it and, and just doesn't, doesn't illuminate anything for him, you know, but I was just so struck by these little um, flashes of, of uh, literary culture in the lives of, of these people who seem very unliterary. Yeah. They sort of float there like life preservers. Yeah, you know, though, in The Student's <laughs> Wife, you know, they, this is a very autobiographical story, you know, with Carver, the student, and it starts off and it seems like kind of a sweet story of a, a guy reading um, Rilke to his wife and, you know, massaging her legs because they hurt, and it just, by the end, it's like, she's like <laughs> praying to God for help because their lives are so desperate, <laughs> you know. Right, yeah. The, the preserver is not always like there's a need for the preserver. Maybe it's not always effective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then you went to study with Carver at Syracuse, but wound up studying with Tobias Wolf. Was that Carver was had moved on by then, or I, again, I, I had made myself a kind of an acolyte of Carver in my own mind, and I discovered as I was looking at writing programs that he was teaching at Syracuse, and I just thought. I can go to the source, you know, yeah. I could actually learn from this writer who right now is my aesthetic mentor. And, and, um, I, I got in there and when I arrived, I learned that he had, um, received this very prestigious award. I think it was called the Strauss living award. It was kind of a version of a, a genius grant. And, uh, he took the year off. So I was studying with Tobias Wolf, who at that point had just published, I believe, in the Garden of the North American Martyrs. He wasn't that well known, though. I think I had seen uh, a story or two of his in maybe Esquire, mm -hmm. and I was excited about about that because I, I could see what a great what a great writer he was. But I was disappointed that Carver wasn't there. And then I think during that year he was diagnosed with with the cancer that killed him, and, mm -hmm. and so he retired. He was he was occasionally around because Tess Gallagher his. Uh, his wife was teaching there. Mm. And so I got to shake his hand once or twice, but we never conversed. And I don't think he ever, you know, had a sense that I was anybody, but, you know, one of the, one of the students who was, was hanging around. Right. It was, it was quite amazing to me to, you know, be in the same room with him at that time. And, and I sort of wished I could have at least uh, articulated you know how much uh, he he had meant to me. He was he was a sort of a distant guy at that point. I I just didn't feel like I could uh, approach him in that way. Mm. So you're uh, Tobias Wolf, though. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, alternate plan. He's so he's legendary for not only being an excellent writer but such a generous instructor. Uh, did that turn out to be an experience that that moved you forward as a writer? Oh yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, I would say. By the time that I was done there, I would I would have talked about Toby and and Raymond Carver in the same that hmm. you know they had become a kind of uh, equal figures in 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 terms of their influence on me and and you know they were they were closely related at at that time 
Um, you know, there are people who would, would talk about movements in American literature in the 80s, you know, saw that there was a Sir Carver school that included Tobias Wolfe and, mm-hmm. and Richard Ford. Richard and Ford, yeah. Possibly, <clears throat> possibly like Bobby Ann Mason mm-hmm. or, um, you know, maybe Ann Baby. And, and it was definitely like in opposition to, and you could hear it in that <laughs> comment of mine that you, you quoted before when I was trying to say, like, I was interested in a, the way I put it now is I was interested in, in a kind of plain language tradition of American literature, you know, yeah. and I was opposing it to, I, you know, I never know what to call that maximalist school. They weren't postmodern yet, you know, uh, cause it wasn't, you know, David Foster Wallace was my contemporary. Mm-hmm. So it was more the, the, the generation before the, John Barth and the Pynchon and the Gaddis, you know, I don't know what to call them except maximalists. And, and, but it, but I was sort of very much casting my, uh, my vote with, with Carver and, and Wolf. And, uh, but, you know, a tradition that then goes back to Hemingway, I think, to hard boiled American writers, to Willa Cather very much, Stephen Crane, you know, there, there's just a whole Sherwood, well, I'm not Sherwood Anderson, actually. Um, but, but those other writers that I mentioned, there was a kind of a plain language, I think democratic. I, I like to use that, that word to mm-hmm. strain in American literature. Um, and Syracuse was the place to be for that. You know, if you're, your, mm-hmm. um, faculty is Raymond Carver and Tobias Wolf. And then, uh, Douglas Unger, by the way, was also teaching there at the time and was a wonderful teacher. There's also a, you know, there's that famous story about, I think it was the French translator of Raymond Carver who, translated his stories and then saw a picture of him and said, I have to retranslate all of these uh, because the guy I saw in the picture would never have used the kind of smirking, ironic style that I was using when I translated the stories. He thought it was a little more of a, you know, sort of poking fun at the people than it actually was. He said, as soon as I saw his face, I realized how earnest and sincere he was. I had to redo it. Um, You know, and there's kind of a, I mean, Kmart realism is another term that's used for those writers. And I think there's a lot of imitators and a lot of, there's probably a lot of bad writing that just picked up on all of the Maybe these were the the Yale classmates of yours who were trying to slum it for a while or something. But it it uh, you know there was a period where you'd get a lot of uh, hard luck stories and a lot of almost like a country music parody or something of characters who were dealing with life struggles in a way that never felt quite legitimate to me as it as it did when it, you read someone who actually comes from that world. Yeah, and and I, I do think for good reason. You know, after the '80s, there was a little bit of a backlash a, against that. Um, and and you'll even see if you you know if you look at say Richard Ford. You know, the, he was writing those very Carver-esque stories in Rock Springs, which are a great collection. But you know, he he moved in a direction that mm. that seemed closer to Roth and Updike. You know, in in the Frank Bascom novels. And and I I will say that you know my own work I think has loosened up quite a bit. I think there's less Carver in it now than there was before. Um, you know, one of the things that really struck me in rereading Will You Please Be Quiet, Please, is how deracinated the stories are. You know, the characters seem to have no histories, mm. and not, they seem to exist not in communities. The, the biggest unit that seems uh, plausible in these stories is, is a couple, and most of the couples are about to to fall apart. And until you get to the last story in the collection, will you please be quiet, please? There's not 
any sort of backstory for, mm. for the characters. You just don't know how they got where they got. They might say, well, I had been in, you know, San Francisco and now I was here, or I used to, you know, I worked at the, at the lumber mill, but then I lost that job. You know, it's almost like a Springsteen yeah. song in that sense, you know, right. very little sense of, of history and, and connection to other people. And, and, uh, you know, it was such a jolt to, to get to, will you please be quiet, please. And, you know, have him say, well, here's this couple and they met, you know, in college and here's how their relationship unfolded and here's how they ended up where they ended up. And it, it just felt like, oh, you know, this can be a part of the story yeah. too, you know, and, and that is certainly something that I have, um, I, I just can't conceive of characters without histories. And, and, uh, I think that was one of the reasons that people could get tired of, of that, you know, quote unquote, Kmart realism mm-hmm. was just that that so much was being left out, you know, for effect. And because I think Carver was onto some truth about America at that moment, you know, mm-hmm. when people were on the move and and um, this blue collar culture that had been viable was suddenly not viable, and and those people were about to be abandoned, and and you know that saga of um, displaced blue collar workers is just you know, kind of defined our politics for the past 50 years or so. Yeah. I wonder if Carver would have moved into a more expansive kind of fiction as well. I think he was already kind of headed that way as his works progressed. And and I know Gordon Lish and his editorial pen was a big part of uh, keeping things pared down and and everything. And as Carver was uh, advancing, I wonder if he would have made a similar move into uh, a bigger book or a novel that uh, was more of a uh, putting things in rather than taking things out. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I don't um, don't know if he would have gone to a novel, but I think if you look at a story like what we talk about when we talk mm-hmm. about love, mm-hmm. um, I mean, even even just uh, uh, I think one of the first lines is you know Mel Mel something was telling a story and he was a ca- a cardiologist, cardiologist yeah. which sometimes gave him the right and <laughs> and you just see you know I, I mean there's one thing I will say about Raven Carver, he dressed when I, when I would occasionally see him in, you know, khaki pants and a blue blazer and an Oxford shirt. You know, I think he was proud to Mm. be a professor and to have, you know, achieved a kind of middle-class life and he drove a Mercedes, you know, and and it was kind of a a really um, interesting thing for me because I think, you know, somebody like Bruce wouldn't, would not have done that. You know, Mm -hmm. he was very interested in his own myth, you know, even though he had probably you know, made a lot of money when he was young. Somebody like Carver, I think, lived lived that real on the edge life. Yeah, I think he went bankrupt a few times and, and he didn't have to worry about, you know, convincing people about his bona fide, you know, blue collar blue collar identity. But and as a result, you know, he he dressed like a kind of you know, a guy who had a law firm in Syracuse or an orthodontist or something. Was there ever a point during those 10 years when you were following Carver's lead where you had to step back from your work and say, this is too much like Carver, I, I need to find my own way here? I think what was what was interesting for me was that the the project that I ended up writing when, when I, uh, in, in Syracuse during grad school was um, the story collection Bad Haircut. Mm. And I think that it has it owes a real debt to Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life. It's a, it's a coming of age collection of of linked stories. It follows you know this kid buddy. He's like eight in the first one, and he's a high school senior in the last one. And it's really about a bunch of male friendships. And 
I think I was struggling until I started working on those stories. And I think because they were so much set in the world of small town New Jersey that I'd grown up in, that I, I was able to kind of separate in my head from, from Carver mm-hmm. um, and feel like I, I, I owned it. But until that point, I was, I think, um, flailing a little bit the way that young writers can flail when they haven't figured out you know, what their real subject is. Mm-hmm. And I was able to kind of build from, from that to you know, the next few books. The Wishbones was a book about a, um, well, uh, these guys who played in a wedding band and then election, you know, is a, set in a high school. And so a lot of them kind of built out of the foundation of bad haircut. And mm-hmm. then Joe College was really my most autobiographical novel about you know, going to Yale and and trying to figure out, you know, how to preserve some sense of self in a place that was so strange. It was almost like I'd, you know, emigrated to a different country or something. Yeah. So, but then I think that the 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 next thing was that shift away from that that to little children, which I think has very little Carver in it. You know, that it was it was me kind of owning my the actual life that I had, mm. like this was my, you know, rather than the writing fiction out of a place that I had come from, but had left. Right. You've been called the master of suburban noir. Is that a, a, a fair description? Do you think? Um, I think little children has some noir in yeah, it. Yeah. That's um, what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, and, and that's probably what people are referring to. Cause I don't think maybe, I mean, maybe the leftovers, has some noir, but it's, you know, once you're into a kind of speculative or dystopian fiction, it's, well, I I think noir has a place in that. Um, Yeah. I I do. What I like about that is, is that it does, I think, acknowledge some darkness that that's in my work that, that um, some critics have been stubbornly uh, ignoring, you know, there's just a lot of people want to see me as a light comic writer. And I just don't, if you look at the work, I just don't think that that's a fair description. There's humor, and I think it might make some of the darkness uh, a little brighter, but the darkness is real in, in most of the books. Is you, there's sort of an assumption in that phrase, as if the suburbs are all sunshine and soccer games and backyard barbecues and lawns and leaves and happy people living happy, happy lives, but the noir takes it in a different direction. Is the darkness something that you invented in order to make the suburbs more interesting as a literary subject, or is the darkness something that you see when you look around in the suburbs? <laughs> well, okay. uh, you know, what, what's so interesting about that, I guess, is that there's a myth of the suburbs that yeah. comes from TV. Right. I mean, American suburban literature has been quite dark yeah. for a long time. I mean, you just <laughs> talk about Cheever and Yates. Um, right. It just, again, it's so interesting to see how stubbornly we hold on to certain ideas, you mm. know, and, and I, it, to, to the point really where like, I, I didn't really think of myself as somebody who wrote about the suburbs. I just wrote about people I knew and they happened to live in the suburbs. I didn't think I was making any kind of statement about suburbia itself. Cause it, I t- just take for granted that the whole spectrum of human character exists in the suburbs the same way that the whole spectrum of human character exists in the cities and, you know, probably in the rural world. I don't know that world as right. well. Um, so I, I never thought, oh, I'm I'm indicting the suburbs, you know. Right. I mean, I'm writing about people and, and anyway, I'm not interested in indicting. I'm interested in telling stories and, and 
describing the world as I see it. Right. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. You fall asleep one night as Tom Parada, the Steinbeck of suburbia. Did you know that was another one of your nicknames? Have you yeah, read that? Yeah, and, that, and that, one, that one only exists because it alliterates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So when you awake, a genie is sitting at the foot of your bed. She's holding a clipboard, and she looks quite harried. There's been a mix-up, she says. Your title as the Steinbeck of suburbia has expired. We forgot to renew it. Our apologies. However, I've got four new choices I can offer you. You won't be Tom Parada, New Jersey's son of Italian immigrants anymore, or grandson of Italian immigrants anymore. You'll be a totally different person from a totally different background living a totally different life. The good news is you still get to be an artist. Do you want to be A, the carver of the Caribbean, B, the urban John Irving, C, the Tolkien of the 21st century, or D, the Springsteen of South Asia? Which do you choose and why? Oh, wow. Well, those are all, uh, they're all pretty good. Um, I think that I will be the, can I be the Springsteen of South Asia? <laughs> <laughs> I might be the Springsteen of something. <laughs> and New Jersey's already taken. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty good choice. I think I know why you picked it. You, uh, you, you, you turned down uh, three chances to be a writer, and instead you, you chose the rock star. That's right. I've, I've, done, the, I've done the writer thing. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Ferrada, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Tom Parada for joining me and to our emailers today and to Raymond Carver for his efforts. Sometimes his efforts feel heroic, almost Herculean. He was such a struggler when he wrote those stories. We are lucky to have them. And speaking of thanks... Oh! I, wait, I almost forgot my podglomerate mention. I've got to get used to this. The History of Literature has joined the podglomerate podcast network, people, which is home to shows like Storybound and Rocketship.fm. If you are so inclined, you can check out some of their shows at www.thepodglomerate.com or follow them on social media. That's it for now, people. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.